0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host, Dalia Gabriel, and tonight I am delighted to be joined by Rivka Brown. Rivka, how you doing?
1: I'm really well. Just about surviving in the heat, though.
0: We have a real jam-packed show for you tonight. We've got some concerns about how international companies are taking advantage of reconstruction efforts in Ukraine. We have an exclusive from Navarra on how a cultural center have had to apologize for shutting down discussions about Palestinian freedom. And we also have some great clips from Mick Lynch one year in from the RMT's dispute. But first, we're going to go to our economy for our first story. So the latest inflation figures have been released by the Office for National Statistics, and the news is bad. This BBC graphic displays the latest ONS data, so the blue line tracks the Consumer Price Index, which measures inflation. And despite the Bank of England raising interest for the 12th consecutive time last month, inflation froze at 8.7% in May. But the picture is even worse if you look at the red line. That's core inflation. So the rate at which the price of goods is rising, excluding so-called volatile factors like food, consumer energy prices, alcohol and tobacco. So another way of putting that is that it strips out many of those goods that are getting more expensive as a direct result of the war in Ukraine. So core inflation, largely based on the rising costs of domestic services, has been steadily trending upwards since early 2021, and it continues to rise. Today, it hit 7.1%, the highest it's been in 31 years. So the Bank of England will meet again tomorrow to set a new interest rate, and they were expected to raise it to 4.75%. But earlier today, markets were betting on a much higher jump to 5%, And now Bloomberg have reported markets are betting on 6%. So that would be a rise of a whole 1.5% from the current rate. For some on Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's team, even that wouldn't go far enough. So Karen Ward is Chief Market Strategist at JP Morgan. Hunt also appointed her a member of his, quote, Economic Advisory Council when he took over as Chancellor last September. Speaking on Radio 4's Today programme, she gave this analysis of what's happening.
2: It's not only that, it's, that inflation is not coming down, as we'd hoped, core inflation, if you look at those figures, up in May, up to 7.4% compared to April, 6.9%.
3: Absolutely. And that's where I think there has been a slight misjudgment at the Bank of England about um, our domestically generated inflation. As I say, you know, the hope was that this was external factors that would quickly come and go. It's clearly not. Our economy is running too hot. Our labor market is still incredibly tight. Um, That is therefore resulting in pay increases, which of course, every household out there wants to be compensated for the fact that their cost of living is going up. That's completely understandable. But what happens then is as a producer, as a firm, You've had your energy bill goes up, then your wage bill goes up, and then you raise your prices again. And that's when you get into this sort of domestic inflation spiral that the Bank of England has to to nip in the
0: bud. Of course, what Ward doesn't mention there is that firms don't just raise their prices to cover increased wages and costs. They also raise them to preserve or even increase their rate of profit. But don't worry, Ward had an excellent idea for how to deal with greedy workers demanding that their salaries meet their basic needs. So we are then in a price-wage spiral as far as you're concerned? I think there's certainly
3: signs that it's emerging. And, And the difficulty for the Bank of England, I mean, no one envies them their job at the moment, is they have to therefore create a recession. They have to create uncertainty and frailty because it's only when companies feel nervous about the future that they will think, well, maybe I won't put through that price rise. Or workers, when they're a little bit less confident about their job, think, well, oh, I won't push my boss for that higher pay. It's that weakness in activity which eventually gets rid of inflation. Now, Of course, none of that's pleasant. And as I say, I really don't envy the job of the Bank of England in being the, the, the one who has to cause that weakness. But, but that is the, there's no other way around
0: it. So just to repeat that, we need workers to be too scared about losing their jobs to ask for pay rises. Ward isn't the first person in the Treasury to call for a recession. Last month, Jeremy Hunt said he would be, quote, comfortable with one. So to make sense of this, I'm joined now by economist and host of the Macro Dose podcast, James Medway. James, what's going on here? Like surely... A recession is something that we're all trying to avoid. Like, is that not one thing that we can all agree on? So, where is this coming from?
4: Well, it's it's coming from the the failed economic theory that's sitting in the heads of the Treasury advisors speaking in the heads of the people in the Bank of England. It's built into their models of how they work. And I must say, after like probably about twelve, eighteen months of talking to people when they say, oh, why, why is the Bank of England putting up interest rates? And, and you have to say something like, look, it's actually to try and induce a recession so that workers are too frightened to ask for pay rises. And people look at you like, that can't be, you know, that's just some sort of mad lefty conspiracy theory. So I'm quite grateful that somebody spelled out so clearly what the actual logic is here. That's what they're trying to do. Now, the problem they've got is that this isn't going to work. Because oh. as you and probably every other person watching this will have noticed, wages aren't in fact rising as much as prices. So the idea that there's some way in which wages are pulling prices up, I'm afraid just doesn't hold for the British economy. But this is a the theory they have, and it's the only one they've got, so they're clinging to it and driving us closer and closer to recession, of course, causing mi- misery for millions of mortgage holders.
0: Yeah, it's like one of those things that when if you said it to someone, they would think that you are a conspiracy theorist, but then I, it's almost like even if they've spelled it out, it just almost feels not real. Anyway, um, rising interest rates are already causing misery for mortgage holders. Misery that's more often than not passed on to renters. But that misery is set to grow even more. And we can track it in real time with lenders anticipating a big rise tomorrow. So Sky News' Ed Conway mentioned this data from Money Facts. So the average two-year fixed rate mortgages have risen from 6%. yesterday to 6.15% today. And five-year fixes have risen from 5.72% to 5.79%. So that rate jump happened over just 24 hours. And the Bank of England hasn't even met yet. Uh, But as always, when it comes to British politics, there's a lot of concern about mortgage holders and an impending mortgage disaster. Uh, It's almost as if property owners are the only people that matter in British politics. Uh, That was a topic that came up in Prime Minister's questions here.
5: The question he refuses to answer, he actually knows the the answer to this question, is £2,900 extra. That's the cost to the average family of the Tory mortgage penalty. Now, he was warned by experts about this as long ago as autumn last year, but he either didn't get it, didn't believe it, or didn't care, because he certainly didn't do anything. Yeah,
0: yeah. And when
5: I raised this a couple of months ago, he had the gall to stand at that dispatch box and say he was delivering for homeowners. Yeah. <laughs> How is an extra £2,900 a year on repayment delivering for homeowners? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Mr Speaker, now, let, let's just
2: let's just look at the facts. Let's look at the facts, because he talks about interest rates. He talks about interest rates. Perhaps the Honourable Gentleman could explain why interest rates are at similar levels in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, and New Zealand, why they're at the highest level in Europe that they've been for two decades, Mr Speaker. That's why it's important that we have a plan to reduce inflation, but in contrast, what do we hear from the Honourable Gentleman? He wants to borrow an extra 28 billion pounds a year. That would make the situation worse. He wants to ban new supplies of energy from the North Sea. That would make the situation worse. And, and he wants to give in to unions, unaffordable pay demands. That would make the situation worse. Mr Speaker, he doesn't have many policies, but the few that he does have all have the same thing in common. They're dangerous, inflationary, and working people would pay the price.
0: If you weren't satisfied with that answer, wait till you see the next one. The Prime Minister has a keen interest
5: in the mortgage market in California, but I'm talking about mortgage holders here. And whilst his government is consumed in law-breaking chaos and division, working people are paying the price. This morning, I spoke to James in Selby. He's a police officer, working hard to keep people safe every day. The Tory mortgage penalty is going to cost him and his family 400 pounds more each and every month. That's nearly 5,000 pounds. He told me this morning, they may not want to hear this, he told me this morning that they've decided to sell their house, to downsize, and he's just told his children they're gonna have to start sharing bedrooms. Why should James and his family pay the cost of the Prime Minister's failure?
2: Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, I hope when the Honourable Gentleman was talking to James, he explained that his economic policies would make James's situation worse, Mr. Speaker. And it's not just just me saying that, Mr. Speaker. The Independent Independent Institute of Fiscal Studies says his policy of never-ending debt and borrowing would damage James because it would increase inflation and drive up interest rates, leaving James and everybody else in this country poorer, Mr. Speaker. The IMF has said that our plan prioritises not what is politically easy, but what is right for the British people. That is what responsible economic leadership looks like.
0: Is that really how economic leadership looks? Just do what the IMF says? I also think of all people, Rishi Sunak, given the state of our economy, Rishi Sunak can't really talk about responsible economic leadership. So while more mortgage holders are in the headlines those hit hardest by inflation are those on the lowest incomes. Many of them have gone into debt to cope with the cost of living crisis, meaning a large interest rate rise is likely to hit them hard too. And the Joseph Rowntree Foundation has published its latest cost of living tracker, surveying households earning less than £26,000 per year. That's the bottom 40% of incomes. And they report these shocking figures. So 4.5 million low-income households are behind with at least one bill with average arrears of £1,600. 3 million have applied for a loan and been rejected. 2.6 million have borrowed from loan sharks and payday lenders. 7.3 million low-income households went without essentials or experienced food insecurity in May. 54% of low-income households on universal credit went without at least three essentials in May. And 69% of low-income households on universal credit have cut back on food for adults. And I should add that 80% of those surveyed who were on universal credit had received a cost of living payment at the time of the survey. So the government's help just isn't cutting through the spiraling costs for families. Rachel Earwaker is the senior economist at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Responding to today's inflation figures, she said this. Last month, 5.7 million households did not have enough money to buy food and were skipping meals or cutting back on how much they could eat. Even if inflation fell now, that would not mean essential items suddenly became affordable. In fact, fresh and healthy food seems increasingly out of reach of many, with food inflation still over 18%. Now, one thing that really strikes me in that statement is the idea that fresh food is increasingly out of reach for many people. That's really alarming and it really brings home how our broken economy is taking basic things that we've taken for granted and should take for granted into luxuries that only a few can afford. If it wasn't bad enough for working people and the costs they're facing, some of Britain's biggest firms aren't even there paying their workers properly. According to The Guardian, over 200 UK employers have been collectively fined £7 million by the HMRC for failing to pay the minimum wage. The businesses, which include Marks & Spencers, Argos and WH Smith, were also forced to pay out nearly £5 million to the 63,000 workers they'd ripped off. WH Smith were the worst offender, having underpaid workers by over £1 million. Both they and Marks and Spencer ascribed their underpayments to unintentional error. And Sainsbury's, which has since taken over Argos, said they had aligned Argos pay with Sainsbury's pay. In short, most people are finding it incredibly hard to live in Britain right now, and it's only set to get harder. So James, Ordinary people can't afford fresh food and massive employers are rinsing their workers. Is this the future we're heading for? Can it be redeemed at this point or are things only going to get worse?
4: Well, it's, you've hit on the, the fundamental sort of problem with inflation and also with how we talk about inflation, that it's a sort of thing that just emerges as if from the skies and lands on us and, and that's that. And really, it's not. The heart of this is, a, is a, a conflict over who gets what. So that if BP or Shell is starting to sell uh, their oil and their gas that they sell at massively increased prices, that means you have to pay more. That means you lose out and they get loads of profits. And the same thing has been happening with food, by the way. It's been less widely reported. But the four largest agribusinesses on the planet, these huge corporations that control much of the food supply chains around the world, mostly based in the US, their profits are up 250% over the last two years. It's the same process at work. That once we started hitting lots of crises, whether it's a Ukraine war, whether it's as we've seen, increasingly, and this is where it gets quite bleak, I think, increasingly the effects of climate change on food production, the soaring cost of oil, uh, olive oil due to uh, drought in Spain over the last few months, for example, the sudden disappearance of tomatoes due to uh, a drought in, in Morocco, that once these impacts take hold, it's big corporations that exploit shortages Profiteering, really, like you can do in a wartime. That's the kind of sort of mentality here. Profiteering from shortages to generate very, very significant profits. That means the rest of us lose out. So if you want to address that, the thing to do is squeeze those profits And that means either start to regulate the prices that can be charged for some essentials or start to see increases in uh, wages. Is the government talking about these things? Well, they floated some idea of price controls a few weeks ago. Now they've killed that off. And their idea on wages, their big plan to control inflation, the one that the International Monetary Fund, no less, says is a great idea, boils down to holding down wages and public sector workers This is what they say in Leaks to the Financial Times, to no more than 5% so as to stop everybody else getting the idea that they can get a decent pay rise. That's the only part of any plan for inflation they have, is to lean into the problem, which is profiteering which is actually to make it worse because you're going to hold down people's wages. And that's the only plan they have to deal with inflation. The rest of it is just fingers crossed and, and hope for the best. It's kind of pathetic. It's kind of pathetic to see this, this paradigm, really, this way of thinking about this, the world, the idea that by inducing a recession, you're going to magically grow more tomatoes in Morocco or more olives in Spain or whatever next disaster it is that, that befalls us, when really what should we be thinking about longer term is making systems, basic systems that we rely on, like our energy system, like our food systems, making them much more resilient. So it's renewables. It's more locally grown stuff. It's support for the people working in those industries. That's what you need to do to make this work. That's how you have to cope with a world that's changing like this. All the kind of nonsense you see around what the Treasury is doing, around what the government's trying to say, around even what the International Monetary Fund is saying, I'm afraid just won't cut anymore.
0: Today's economic news isn't just bad for the ordinary people of this country, it's also bad news for Rishi Sunak. Of course, the slick millionaire married to a billionaire isn't going to feel the pinch himself, but the blow to his political reputation is huge. Tories overseeing a mortgage meltdown, that's a disaster electorally. And it gets worse for Sunak because the Times reports this. UK net debt above 100% of GDP for first time since 1961. The article goes on to say this, official figures showed that government borrowing rose by £20 billion in May, larger than the £18.3 billion expected by the Office for Budget Responsibility and beating economists' estimates of about £19.5 billion. The jump in borrowing was driven by a higher debt interest bill as inflation has remained stubbornly strong this year alongside a rising government spending on pay for NHS staff, energy subsidies for households and an uprating in benefits, said the Office for National Statistics. Back in January, Sunak laid out five key pledges as Prime Minister. These three were about economics.
2: I want to make five promises to you today. Five pledges to deliver peace of mind. Five foundations on which to build a better future for our children and grandchildren. First... We will halve inflation this year to ease the cost of living and give people financial security. Second, we will grow the economy, creating better paid jobs and opportunity right across the country. Third, we will make sure our national debt is falling so that we can secure the future of public services.
0: With the prospect of a, gr- of a recession, growing inflation, and now rising national debt as a proportion of GDP, all three of those promises look set to be pretty firmly binned. The Conservatives won the 2010 election on a platform of all government debt being banned, you know, labor spending, fiscal black holes, etc. And yet here we are, it's been 13 years of Tory rule, and government borrowing is smashing expectations, and yet our life, quality of life is not increasing. Um, with what you would expect that government spending to look like. James, is this Tory hypocrisy or does it kind of show the incoherence of that story to begin with?
4: Well, it was always a a very, very bad story. I noticed uh, George Osborne popping up at the COVID inquiry trying to justify austerity with the excuse that he and his former advisor has used before that, you know, if we hadn't cut massively from the 2010s onwards as soon as they were elected, uh, we wouldn't have had all this extra money lying around to, to spend on the COVID support schemes that we have, which, of course, glosses over the fact the really big problem with what Osborne as Chancellor did from 2010 onwards, which is to cut spending left, right and centre, including investment spending, including capital spending, including spending on new transport, new energy systems, new uh, hospitals, schools, this sort of stuff didn't happen. And that means 10, 15 years down the line, 13 years down the line you end up with all these things slowly crumbling away. Uh, there's a 10 billion pound backlog for repairs in the NHS now, because we didn't spend earlier in the decade. Austerity was an absolute, absolute disaster for this country and anywhere else that it was applied. And it's a large part of the reason things look so bad now. Had we not done that, things might look better this time round. And of course, that doesn't really get you out of uh, the situation here. If we had a Tory party that wasn't actually going to act like a Tory party at all, and if they started to think about how you might seriously start to invest. Rebuild our public services, not worry too much about public debt being high. It's high across the world everywhere. That's been a general impact of COVID, uh, amongst other things, in the last few years. That if you're serious about this, you might start to think, well, okay, why don't we tax the rich? Why don't we tax the top 1%? Raising, according to LSE and Warwick University research, that's £250 billion over five years from a a small tax, a 1% tax on the very, very richest people in the country. You could start to do this. And that would give you the resources that can rebuild our economy, start to give people decent jobs, do all the other stuff we'd like to see. Instead, what we get in the minute, I'm afraid, is this drift in the middle of the system, where the old model that people have in their heads, you've got to induce a recession, you've got to let interest rates rise, you've got to hold down wages, isn't going to work because we keep hitting all these big international shocks. It's not where inflation's coming from. That's not going to work. We're just going to induce a recession. It's just going to be miserable for people. We need a really big overhaul of how the mainstream, uh, how the institutions in our country think and act when they're confronted with a crisis, because at the minute, it's just not happening.
0: James Meadway, thank you so much for joining me this evening for once again cutting through all the economics jargon to tell us the real story politically and economically of what's, what's going on. Thanks so much. Thank you. And do check out Macrodose, the podcast. It's 15 minutes a week and it's really good for just keeping on top of the progressive analysis of what's happening in, you know, the economic headlines. So on to our next story. Technocrats, business leaders, politicians, and titans of global finance are meeting at a conference in London. The topic? They say Ukraine's post war recovery. But you might also say carving up a war torn country for global profit. This is how Prime Minister Rishi Sunak kicked things off.
2: Before this terrible war, Ukraine's economy was becoming a huge investment opportunity. It was the breadbasket of Europe, exporting millions of tons of food and grain each month a top five exporter of iron ore and steel, a leader in energy, pushing forward renewables, hydrogen and electric vehicles, and a startup nation, which helped spark names like PayPal, WhatsApp and Revolut with a thriving tech sector, which actually had a record year in 2022. Because the truth is that opportunity is still there today. In fact, the war has only proved how much Ukraine
0: has to offer. That's right, Rishi. Never let a good war go to waste, huh? Amongst Britain's pledges to a post-war Ukraine was this standout figure. Sunak has promised that the UK will act as a guarantor to $3 billion worth of loans from the World Bank. Those guarantees are hardly likely to come for free and World Bank loans are well known for demanding difficult terms from poorer countries or countries in vulnerable states. Austerity, privatization and financial liberalization. In short, neoliberalism. The Bretton Woods Project is an NGO that serves as a watchdog for the World Bank and IMF. In 2019, they described the conditions of IMF and World Bank financing like this. Most typically, these are fiscal consolidation measures or austerity and include reducing the public wage bill, introducing or increasing VAT and other indirect regressive taxes in particular, labor flexibilization, rationalizing, i.e. cutting, and privatizing social services and targeting social protections and sub- subsidies, whilst maintaining low levels of inflation, corporate taxation rates and trade tariffs. These aren't just economic conditions, they're political ones too, though naturally no one gets to vote for them. Creating an environment welcoming to corporate interests is already firmly on the table. This is what the government's own loan guarantee announcement revealed. The UK support is backed by a major signal of intent from world leading businesses, with more than 400 companies from 38 countries with a combined annual revenue of over $1.6 trillion, pledging to back Ukraine's recovery and reconstruction in the wake of Russia's illegal invasion. Major conglomerates, international corporations and retail chains are among those who have signed up to the Ukraine Business Compact, which is spearheaded by the UK as part of the two-day conference. Virgin, Sanofi, Philips, Hyundai Engineering and City are amongst the companies involved. And in even more reassuring news for the future of the people of Ukraine, the Financial Times reports this. BlackRock and J.P. Morgan helped set up Ukraine Reconstruction Bank. The fund aims to attract billions of dollars in private investment to assist rebuilding projects in the war-torn country. BlackRock is an unregulated global investment management firm described as the world's largest shadow bank. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan just last week agreed to pay $290 million to settle a lawsuit brought by Jeffrey Epstein's victims, who alleged the bank enabled his abuse. That's a match made in heaven, isn't it? A figure from JP Morgan told the FT this. The fund is being set up to also give public and private sector investors the opportunity to invest into specific projects and sectors. There will be different sectoral funds that the fund identified as priorities for Ukraine. The aim is to maximize capital participation. The cost of Ukraine's reconstruction is estimated at anywhere between $410 billion and $1 trillion. That means a lot of money to be made by investors. It also means a lot of political control over the shape of the country's future. And by that, I mean undemocratic political control, of course. We've seen it all before, most notably in Iraq. Billions of dollars were poured into reconstruction efforts in the country that were only needed because of the US and the UK's illegal war there. Companies like Halliburton and Bechtel made a fortune while delivering almost nothing for the Iraqi people. For example, Halliburton's turnover jumped by 80% in the immediate recovery period. A Sky News journalist raised the comparison with British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly.
3: What concrete steps uh, are you all taking to ensure
1: that reconstruction efforts in Ukraine don't go the way of reconstruction efforts in Iraq, where we saw a lot of corruption, big private security companies coming in, and reconstruction actually not working to help the people of Iraq?
6: Firstly, the situation in um, Iraq and the situation in Ukraine, very, very uh, different uh, indeed. But on on the broader point that you're making, one of the observations that I think the international community has made is the uh, really impressive speed of reform of the Ukrainian armed forces we have seen the ukrainian armed forces with our support uh, with the support of the international community transform itself over the last 15 16 17 months to be a, a very sophisticated modern uh, fighting force which is why the ukrainians have consistently overperformed on the battlefield and i think why the russians have consistently underperformed uh, on the uh, on the battlefield what that demonstrates to me is that there is an ability and a motivation for the Ukrainians to reform more broadly. And I think there's a recognition that as part of the recovery process, institutional reform is an important uh, element. And we've seen the Ukrainians are able to reform and reform quickly. Uh, I think they recognise that in their desired pathway to uh, EU membership and NATO membership, uh, that uh, institutional reform will be an important part of it.
0: The Ukrainian armed forces that James cleverly refers to there have been formed by massive civilian participation. Once the banks, asset strippers and consultancies get their hands on the country, those same civilians are not likely to get any say in its economic future. But what is the alternative? Open Democracy spoke to Labour MP John McDonnell, who told them this. We
7: all support the whole concept of ensuring that there's the reconstruction of Ukraine that we can support, both in terms of the UK, working with Ukrainians, across Europe and into the US as well. That's So that's the first point, yes, got, we support this. But what I'm concerned about is that reconstruction will be based upon, but... Neoliberal principles where the private sector are looking to make maximize their profits, they're extracting resources from Ukraine. And again, instead of being for the benefit of the people of Ukraine and the workers, in particular working-class communities, it will be more exploitation. So that's why we're trying to ensure that we present an alternative, supporting our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in the Labour and Trade Union movement out there. What we need people to do here is to work, for example, through organisations like the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, where we're working with Ukrainians Socialists and trade unionists identifying what their ideas are for the sort of reconstruction that they want and then what role we can play. But that means ensuring that we do not allow the exploitative role, for example, of the city of London in terms of how they control finances going into Ukraine to make sure our government is not using it as another opportunity to spread their political ideas, particularly about the undermining of trade union rights and the, the way in which As in this country, what they've tried to do is ensure corporations can maximise their profits on the backs of the workers themselves. So there's a huge role that we can play here, working in solidarity and support.
0: Rivka, has neoliberalism ever made anything better? Great question,
1: Dahlia. I guess it depends who you're asking, you know, for the four... For the four richest Britons in the country, life is great, but for the 20 million people who earn collectively as much as those four people, probably not. You know, what we're seeing in this conference which Rishi Sunak opened today is the contemporary equivalent of the scramble for Africa. We're seeing vultures circling the wreckage of Kiev, effectively, seeing what money they can make out of it. You know, how do you think that the 6 million internally displaced Ukrainians or the 8 million Ukrainians who've had to flee their home country uh, think how do you think they feel when they hear Rishi Sunak describe their country as an investment opportunity you know these are people who don't want sky pools and Michelin star restaurants and hedge funds opened in their country they want hospitals and schools and they want their homes back. you know the idea that um, Ukraine can be rebuilt by a massive investment of finance capital is is totally, totally false. You know, neoliberal neoliberalism's central tenet that um human well-being is uh synonymous with economic growth that deregulates deregulation of markets, you know, free market capitalism, is totally, totally false. All that this massive investment will do is extract money out of ukraine and put it in the pockets of international finance you know the idea and and not only that as you say dahlia it will also tie the hands of ukraine forcing it to adopt more and more neoliberal policies such as austerity you know it's like actually a good idea to think about what happened in britain after the second world war that allowed our own economy to rebuild you know that period was often described as the age of austerity, but if you think about what actually allowed Britain to heal from the ravages of war, it was the creation of the NHS, it was mass immigration from former colonies, it was the nationalisation of steel, of the railways, of, um, you know, public services, what we now think of as public services, you know, the idea that private companies like BlackRock that want to create a beacon of capitalism in Ukraine are the ones that are going to genuinely give the millions of Ukrainian people whose lives have been immiserated by months, years of war, what they want is is totally, totally false. And and in fact, you know, the callousness with which Rishi Sunak kind of rubs his hands and describes a war-torn country as an investment opportunity is a perfect example of that.
0: Yeah, I think you can ask any Iraqi or Greek person, you know, when, and they will tell you, when the British state, the US, BlackRock, JP Morgan are talking about reconstructing your your country, rebuilding your country, that is the time to run. Um, or at least, you know, mount some serious resistance. Right, on to our next story. The largest performing arts center in Europe has been forced to apologize for shutting down a discussion on Palestine, The Barbican cancelled an event featuring Elias Anastas, the co-founder of Palestinian community radio station Radio Al-Harra. The centre says this was due to last-minute technical issues, but shortly before cancelling, Elias received this message from a Barbican staffer managing the event. In terms of content, avoid talking about Free Palestine at length, just to further safeguard the audience. A few moments before that, friend of Navara and host of the event, Nihal al-Asr, received a message from the same staffer asking her if she could, quote, steer clear of thorny issues. When Nihal asked what they meant by thorny issues, the staffer replied that they shouldn't discuss, quote, free Palestine or whatever. Very charming. Understandably, Ilyas and Nihal pushed back. They were there to talk about a Palestinian radio station as part of a series of events on design and social justice. So if what you mean by thorny issues is Israel's occupation of Palestine, then of course that's going to be part of the discussion. Regardless, the event was abruptly cancelled moments before it was supposed to begin. The Barbican has since apologised for the debacle, publishing a statement that said this. At The Barbican, we always strive to use our platform and program to represent the widest possible range of worldviews, human experiences, artistic expressions, and enable free exchange of ideas and debate. The co-founder of the Palestine-based Radio Al-Hara was invited to deliver a streamed talk remotely on the radical possibilities of radio. In haste, shortly before before the event was due to begin, the Barbican shared an editorial note with the speaker asking him to avoid spending too much time discussing free Palestine. The situation was compounded by a technical failure with the live broadcast, which unfortunately brought the event to an abrupt close. This intervention by the Barbican relating to the content of the talk was unacceptable and a serious error of judgment for which we are deeply sorry. As an organization, we believe in the importance of free speech, dialogue and debate, Giving a platform to the experiences and views of individuals and groups involved in Free Palestine is part of this commitment. Now, Rivka, you actually broke this story for Navara. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened here?
1: Sure. So, I mean, you've got most of the details there, but I think the one thing that I would add is that the justification that the staff member who spoke to Nahal and also uh, messaged Elias afterwards on Instagram gave for asking them to curb to kind of rein in what they said about Palestine was that they were going to safeguard the audience by doing so. Um, I think this is a really interesting point because the uh, the audience was made up of about twenty young people who were there to learn about how to produce radical radio. Um, now if you look at the opinions of young people on palestinian liberation um you know a huge a huge proportion of 18 to 24 year olds you know support Palestine more than they support Israelis. About three times as many support Palestinians as they do Israelis versus about half of the general population. So you've got uh, an audience that is already pretty sympathetic to Palestine, presumably even more so than the general population, given that they're at the Barbican to learn about radical radio production. So the question really is, who were they safeguarding? Um, now, it's also important to note that the instruction supposedly came from senior management. Who is the most senior manager at the Barbican, the artistic director? Will Gompertz. Now, Gompertz used to be the arts uh, editor of the BBC for 11 years before joining the Barbican a couple of years ago. Uh, publicly educated, public school educated, I should say. Uh, recently told Prospect magazine that the greatest threat to the arts was cancel culture. Now, I'm sure that this will be enough to kind of inform uh, Navarra. Uh, viewers about what the politics of this Will Gompertz might be. So I guess the question is, who were they really protecting? Were they protecting the audience of the event or were they protecting mollycoddled private school educated men who found their way
0: into the corridors of power looking for their mummy? Yeah, I mean, I I also found that language really interesting. The idea that a conversation about, because I mean, if you're going to that event, you know that we're going to talk about free Palestine. So it's very, it's a very odd use of of language, and I wonder if actually the fact that young people are so supportive of Palestinian liberation and Palestinian rights that that's why it's kind of seen as a threat and why they're, why they're trying to depoliticize Palestinian cultural production, which is of course incredibly difficult to do and something that Ilyas didn't want to do anyway. You know, he was there to talk about his radio show, his community radio station, in the context of being occupied. So in your your piece, you quoted Nihal, who was the host of the event and who also received one of these odd messages. Um, and she said that this was part of a broader backlash against increasing support for Palestine since the May 2021 protests. Can you talk about that broader context of, you know, cultural institutions, particularly the Barbican, um, having this kind of backlash against talking about issues to do with Palestine?
1: It's pretty rampant um, across our society. And I mean, it doesn't kind of necessarily um, require individual examples, but I mean, one obvious one, not from the UK, but a story I covered relatively recently was the the firing of, of nine employees of Deutsche Welle, the uh, state broadcaster in, in Germany. You know, the clampdown on Palestinian free speech in the kind of media and cultural center um, media and cultural sector, I should say, um, is pretty rampant. But I do agree um, with Nihal that it has um, escalated, uh, particularly since the kind of May 2021 bombardment. And I think also since the kind of resulting um, normalization um, and and kind of uh, universalization of terms like apartheid to describe what's going on in Israel, Um, terms which have become all the more kind of justifiable since the election of um, Israel's most far-right Sort of genocidal, anti-Palestinian genocidal government that's arguably ever existed. So I think you know we we are seeing um, a greater kind of. Um, Tetchiness, let's say, amongst the establishment towards Palestine, and I mean not just uh, the political establishment, but the kind of cultural establishment. Um, Will Gompertz, as I say, has uh, um, a history at the BBC. You know, these are all the same set of people. I'm sure one day he'll get a peerage. Maybe one day stand for office. Who knows? These are all the same people, and they're threatened by Palestine. You know, when when um, the staff member at the Barbican said that they that they were safeguarding, they that they had safeguarding concerns there are safeguarding concerns because Palestine is a threat. It's a threat to the establishment. And more and more so, given the kind of momentum that the Palestinian um, kind of domestic and kind of diaspora movement is gaining, you know, as seen in in, in the popularization of terms like apartheid, as seen in the kind of recent wins of the BDS movement. You know, we've seen Barcelona and kind of um, cities around Europe uh, disassociate from Israel. We've seen dock workers refuse to load Israeli ships. We've seen Ben and Jerry's pull out of settlements. We've seen, you know, 250 Israeli, uh, American uh, Jewish business people writing to Netanyahu saying that there's a threat of divestment. You know, the Palestinian, as the Palestinian movement gains traction, it, it kind of provokes almost an equal and opposite reaction in the establishment. And I think that's partly what we're seeing here. I think it's also worth noting that, you know, it, there was a question raised by a number of people I spoke to for my report. Why did the Barbican pick on this tiny little event? It's a 20 person, you know, pretty under the radar event. The Barbican also hosts the London Palestine Film Festival. Why not choose that to launch an attack on Palestinian free speech? And I think this is like actually quite a salient question. Um, The answer to which I think might be that it's much easier to pick off kind of smaller actors like radio al hara or nihal um, than it is to take down a, a very established palestinian film festival established in part because of the public support for palestine that i've mentioned earlier so i think what we're seeing here is is kind of the establishment seizing this kind of opportunity to pick off a straggler um hope that it will go unnoticed but unfortunately in part thanks to my own reporting um be sort of exposed and forced to backtrack so i think this is a good result
0: it's about creating a general climate of anxiety around talking about these things because you don't know when you're going to going to get a phone call from you know someone who is you know paying you for something or employing you for something or whatever and who's going to say something like this and you know particularly the fact that this staffer did it right before the event and spoke to each of them separately it was it, that like that's a pretty clear attempt to sort of slip it in really you know without much pushback. So yeah, um, great that you covered that. And thank you so much, Rivka. And if you want to read more on this story, that report from Rivka is up on Navara Media uh, on the website. And also the link for the piece is in the description. So do read that and share it as well. We should also say a really big thank you to everyone who supports us financially, uh, and that, of course, is all of you. Navara Media is a people-powered organization, and that means that nothing we do with would be possible without your donations. So if you want to support truthful, honest, independent media, then head to navaramedia.com/support. And that link is also um, in the description box below, along with Ripka's piece. Right, so on to our last story. It's been one year since the RMT started the largest bout of industrial action since 1989. And you know what that means. It's also been one year of RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch owning the airwaves. Given the anniversary, Lynch appeared on Nick Ferrari's LBC show to take questions from the public. He updated listeners on where things stand with the government. And as you guessed it, things stand nowhere because the government hasn't been engaging with the RMT or the railway companies for several months now. And when asked why, Lynch gave a pretty damning explanation for why he thinks the government had been refusing to come to the negotiating table.
8: The railway secretary has said in the Commons, on the record, that it would have been far cheaper to settle the dispute than fight it. So this dispute isn't about the railways, it's about everything else but the railways. And Matt and everybody else is suffering as a result of that because they want to make an exemplar of the RMT and ASLIF that they can drive out terms and conditions And they can drive out good wages. What's wrong with good wages in good jobs? I don't understand this, that because some people are paid low in supermarkets, working on zero hours contracts, everybody else has to be reduced to that level of penury in some cases. It's a race to the bottom. What we'd like to do is lift all the boats. We'd like everyone to enjoy good terms and conditions and good salaries.
0: So Mick's basically saying there that the government could settle this dispute, but they're choosing not to simply to make a point of punishing workers taking strike action, which they are fully within their rights to do. But Lynch's frustrations were not limited to just the Conservative Party. He also had this to say in response to a question on Labour Party leader Keir Starmer's approach, not only to this dispute, but to working class politics more broadly. Are you satisfied
2: with the support you're getting from Keir Starmer's Labour Party, or do you think it's time for a new left-wing party to form around Jeremy Corbyn and other Labour lefties who have been purged from the party? Now, Are you I'm a not, Labour lefty, Mr Lynch?
8: I don't, I'm not in the Labour Party. I haven't been Are since... you a
2: lefty, Mr
8: Lynch? I'm, I suppose I'm on the left in public life in Britain. I'm not ashamed of that. I am a socialist. Do we need a new uh, left-wing party? Are you getting no. enough
2: support from Sir
8: yeah, I'll deal with it. I don't think we are getting enough support from Keir, and I've said that many times. I think he could be a bit more assertive, not just for us, but for all those working people that are struggling. Working people in general could have a bit more support, and he could be in a bit practical terms. What do you mean out on picket lines? What do you mean in practical? I don't mind if he's on picket lines or not. It's not going to change this dispute, but I think he should be saying what his vision is. Now he has said some things that we support. The New Deal for Workers will rebalance. The P and O dispute showed how imbalanced. Uh, employment law is in this country. Just remind you, that was when they unilaterally sacked Sacked hundreds of people. 800 of our members, actually, uh, and got got round, yeah, of of, uh, RMT members at P&O, and got round that because of the weakness of the employment law, and they've done nothing to change that. Now, there is a new deal for workers that he's got on statute books. He's going to repeal some of these poor anti-union laws and, importantly, make individual rights for workers available from day one. Now, we support that. We've got to make sure he does it, and we will push I don't think the new left party is viable or desirable. Uh, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn wants that. Jeremy Corbyn wants to remain in the Labour Party, and we support him on that. I think he should allow to be. The Labour Party's got to show it's a broad church. It's always the phrase used. There are some socialist people of uh, the left stripe, and there are some centre people, and there are some you know, reformist, traditional right, right-wingers in the Labour Party. There should be space for all of them, and they should be able to come up with a... Uh, a rainbow coalition in that party that brings people to their flag. And I hope that happens at the next election because this government must go. I think even conservative people think that now. This government is staggering along on an empty tank that has got no ideas and no legislation uh, in the stocks.
0: He also faced a couple of the typical hardball questions. You know, why are you inconveniencing the public? Aren't you all champagne socialists, etc.? But this question, which was actually from an RMT member, I found Lynch's answer to this particularly interesting.
8: Another call, another. I'm sorry, email comes in from someone who says that they're a member of the union. This person is called Rachel. Will you ask Mick Lynch? I've been losing money during these twelve months of strike. How much has he lost, Mick Lynch? Well, yeah, I, and I thank all our members for for their commitment to the, to the cause. I uh, donate my salary uh, when when there's a strike on in this national dispute, and I haven't had a pay rise right since I've been. General Secretary, I've foregone any pay rise. How long have you been General Secretary, Mister? Uh, I'm going into my third year now, and I haven't had a pay rise since I took the job. In fact, I cut the the General Secretary's salary so, so, so by twenty percent. Okay, do you lose money then? As Rachel asks, she yep. says she does. You, you I do? give up. I and the other national officers give up our salary on strike days.
0: One thing that you'll notice that the press always do is they always try and portray you know, union representatives to be like these champagne socialists, you know, even the fact that they use the term union bosses or union barons, it's loaded language to basically act as if the interests of union representatives who are A, people who have worked or work in the industry that they are represented, and B, are elected that they are somehow, you know, the real elite or, you know, the real people who are enjoying fat bonuses and big salaries at the expense of everyone else. Of course, that's projection 101. But I think it's really good that Mick Lynch is making clear there that, no, I am in this struggle with the workers that I represent and those the people I'm accountable to. And I think it's really important that workers like that person who called in, who is a member of the RMT, is able to put questions like that to their representatives. Some questions that came in were, of course, a little less constructive. Let's have a look at this clip.
2: Tony Devendish, a Tory London Assembly member, refuses to apologise. He says your members are, quote, skivers. Are they Skyvers? Would you accept an apology? Well, it's nonsense. If he
8: could get up at the hours our members get up, he was talking about London Transport, who've had to shut stations. They made 600 redundancies. Now they've got to shut stations because they haven't got enough staff. We told them that before they did it. He's making out that our members are behind the gates asleep. It's absolute nonsense, and it's an affront. He's trying to make himself famous because nobody knows who he is on the London <laughs> Assembly, frankly. So the only bit of uh, coverage he gets is by tweeting on the RMT uh, Twitter page, so that's that's right. got him his, his five seconds of fame, right. but I think he should be consigned to an un- anonymity un- where he belongs, because he's got no idea. Last if time. he had to get up at two o'clock in the morning and open up Charing Cross Station to let you in a bit later, he'd see how hard it is.
0: Five seconds of fame. Mick didn't even give him his 15 minutes. He doesn't even get that. Also, I just have this image of like Tory councillors like, sitting in, in their pants on a, at 2pm on a weekday, tweeting, you know stuff at the RMT for being Skyvers, and it's pretty, pretty gross. I also just love it when he gets that shady look in his eyes, you know, that twinkle. Obviously, Mick Lynch has been one of the few in the media to speak truth to power amidst the crushing cost of living crisis. And unlike many others we see in the media, his legitimacy doesn't come from hobnobbing with the powerful. It comes from being the elected representative of over 40,000 workers and taking his cues from them.
1: My guy must have some industrial aircon because he is cool <laughs> as a cucumber. I mean, like that's the joy of watching Mick Lynch, right? He's just unflappable, and I think there are a few reasons for this. Some of which you've already pointed out. One is that unlike our unelected prime minister, Mick has a massive mandate. You know, ninety six percent of RMT uh, members voted for the most recent round of strike action, so he he knows he's he's you know sitting on an absolute sea of support. I think the other thing. Is that you know he he lives his principles unlike Rishi Sunak who sips from his like two hundred pound water bottle whilst telling the rest of us that we have to tighten our belts you know Mick is actually as you say in the struggle he's cutting his own wages he's he's forfeiting his own pay on strike days but the third and I think you know perhaps most basic reason that he is so unflappable in front of all of these Nick Ferraris and you know various kind of media pundits is that he's not one of them he's not there waiting to be let into the halls of power he left school at 16 he became an engineer now he's the head of the rmt he's not speaking to nick ferrari he's speaking past nick ferrari to the millions of people in britain who support him and i think it's actually really interesting to think about how resilient support for the rmt has been you know Nick Ferrari points out kind of rightly that that support has waned and has been eroded over the the course of the extremely lengthy um, train dispute. And that is, um, you know, part of the the government's aim in dragging out this dispute for so long, despite how costly and how counterproductive it is on an economic level. Um, But on the other hand, 32% of the British public still support the strikes, despite them having been, you know, having gone on since now time immemorial, you know, This is despite an enormous campaign of demonization targeted almost exclusively at Mick And the reason for that, of course, is that the other uh, sectors taking industrial action, you know, doctors, nurses, ambulance workers, are much harder to kind of undermine, for the government to undermine than the rail workers, because these are the people we clap for during COVID, right? But there's a reason that you, I mean, some of our audience might, but I'm presuming many of our audience won't know the name of the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nurses, Pat Cullen. And that's, there's a reason for that. Because she hasn't been in a Tory smear campaign uh, displayed, you know, uh, in front of a grimacing Keir Starmer because she hasn't been described as a union baron, as a national disgrace. And, you know, the fact that 32, 32% of the British public still cares very deeply about the success of the rail strikes is is actually an enormous achievement on Mick Lynch's part. And I think, you know, he's 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 not going to be undermined by an establishment that he doesn't want to join.
0: Mm, I think that's such a good point, especially, you know, I was reading recently about, I think it was Seb Payne. Don't quote me on that. But I think it, it was definitely a prominent journalist who was talking about wanting to be an mp or there was like indications that he wants to run as an mp and i just think that it's like so deeply inappropriate that the people who are supposed to be giving us the coverage and analysis of power or you know they're not i mean i guess you're not supposed to be doing that if you're a telegraph writer or whatever but that they are, that they see themselves as they see their potential future in the very people they're supposed to be critiquing. Because then it's like, well, obviously, you're going to do everything you can to like preserve those relationships and stay cozy with people and not get on the wrong side of people in power. And so that is obviously going to have an impact on the journalism that you can do. And that's why, even though Mick Lynch isn't a journalist, actually, in many ways, like, The job he's doing of, you know, contextualizing and being informed on why this dispute is happening, on cutting through and critiquing government lines, is the job that journalists are supposed to be doing. Um, But, you know, they can't because of their vested interests. I'm going to finish with just one last super chat, just because it's so lovely. Um, Patricia Fanning with a £10 super chat says... Brilliant show. Thank you, Dahlia, James and Rivka. And thank you, Patricia. Uh, We always appreciate your super chats. Uh, And of course, if you want to support us directly as well, um, the link to do that is in the description below. Uh, So thank you so much, Rivka, for joining me for this show tonight. It was great having you.
1: Thanks, Dahlia. My makeup's just about not melted off.
0: <laughs> you did a great job. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Um, thanks for everyone for tuning in. Uh, this show will be back tomorrow, live from 6 pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
2: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to slash
3: support.